This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, I want to thank all of our patrons. Justin G., Bobby O., Penny R., Darlene B., Patricia C., Thomas S., Krista, Douglas S., Adam B., JRS, Melissa K., Karen F., Megan, Mark B., Lynn T., Heidi T., Bradley G., Laura G., Harry M., Wendy C, Justin H, Mickey B, IDC, Jane W, Vicky R, Molly, Lisa W, Mary B. Thank you all so much for all of your donations. You don't know how much we appreciate it. We have costs that go into this podcast, like monthly fees and website hosting fees. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. If you would like to become a Patreon member, head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acrobeca Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. For a century and a half, the name Tiffany has been synonymous with designer lamps, jewel-toned vases, mosaic windows, and other intricate glass artwork. And for nearly as long, the man behind that name, Louis Comfort Tiffany, was recognized as the designer of his signature pieces. He employed dozens of people to help him at his New York City studio and factory, men and women responsible for cutting the glass and assembling the items as he envisioned them. (laughs) Tiffany was a considerable artistic talent, but also an astute businessman. He carefully controlled his brand, and it was extremely rare for anyone within the company to have their name associated with a Tiffany product. And so, over time, it was presumed Mr. Tiffany was the guiding hand behind everything. It wasn't until the early 2000s that that myth exploded with the discovery of some letters that revealed Tiffany was not the sole vision behind his art. Far from it, 
about 30 of his most famous lamps were the brainchild of a woman from Talmadge, Ohio. This isn't the first time 19th century Victorian sensibilities obscured credit that was owed to a woman. And 21st century historians were really excited about the chance to play detective and shed light on a corner that had always been in shadow. When they learned the name of the artist, they celebrated her work with an exhibition in New York City and a traveling display that went to three continents. They even wrote books about her, biographical and even a couple of novels that combined real history with a fictional story about what her relationship with Mr. Tiffany might have been. So tonight, we give you the tale of Clara Wolcott Driscoll, a hidden creative force behind an American legend, and why it took more than a century for us to even know about her. She was born Clara Pierce Wolcott on December the 15th, 1861, in Talmadge, back then a rural village in the county of Summit. Her parents were Eliza and Fanny. If you live in Talmadge, you no doubt know of Old Town Hall, a historic building still carefully tended inside the city's famed Talmadge Circle. Well, Eliza Wolcott met his future wife, Fanny Pierce, in that building when they attended classes at the Talmadge Academy there. Eliza and Fanny both went on to seminary school, intending to become missionaries, but Eliza's poor health prevented travel. So he turned to farming, as well as teaching at Western Reserve Academy in Hudson, and Fanny raised their four daughters. Clara was the eldest, and just 12 when those health problems caught up with father. When Eliza died, Fanny turned to teaching to support her girls as she continued to raise them in an old frame house that still sits on a hilltop off Northeast Avenue. Fanny encouraged her girls to be ambitious, independent, and educated, so when Clara revealed an aptitude for art as a teenager, she was sent to live with a relative in Cleveland so she could take advantage of a free art program at Central High School. On graduating, Clara remained in Cleveland and attended the Western Reserve School of Design for Women, which later became the Cleveland Institute of Art. She also landed a job designing local furniture for a maker called C.S. Ransom and Company. In 1888, 27-year-old Clara moved to Queens, New York to continue her education at the new Metropolitan Museum Art School. She took her younger sister, Josephine, along with her. And with a year, both of them landed jobs at the celebrated Tiffany Glass Factory, where the man was already world-renowned for his colorful cut glass art. We know Clara started out making $20 a week. I also learned something very unusual for the time. 
Tiffany paid unmarried female workers the same as his unmarried male workers. So go Tiffany. Now, Sister Josephine eventually returned home to Ohio to become a teacher, but Clara had found her calling. Her art studies had focused on natural forms, and the flowers and insects became the standard theme of Tiffany lamps. Tiffany employees were segregated by gender, and that was common for the time as well. The women worked at Tiffany headquarters in a building that still stands at 25th Street and Park Avenue South. They were responsible for selecting and cutting the glass that made the blooms and leaves and whatever the artist had in mind. It was a vital yet entirely anonymous contribution. The glass would then be sent to a nearby factory where the men assembled them into the final product. Clara eventually became the head of what was the only known women's glass cutting operation in a male-dominated industry. There's a group photo of the women's cutting department, affectionately referred to as the Tiffany Girls. The black and white image shows a couple of dozen women in prim, full-length skirts and high collars, standing on a Manhattan rooftop with a glimpse of the turn-of-the-century skyline behind them. Clara stands out, erect and poised like the supervisor she had become. But to stay at Tiffany's, if you were a woman, you had to remain single. That was also common for the era, when married women were expected to turn their attention to home and family. This policy led to a roller coaster of employment for Clara as she fell in and out of three different relationships. In 1889, she took her leave from Tiffany's after marrying Francis Driscoll, a man 30 years her senior. When he died three years later, the company took her back. She remained there from 1893 to 1896 when she became engaged a second time. Now, I need to take a little side trip here because there's a fascinating mystery about this second beau of hers. Clara's fiancé this time was 30-year-old Edwin Waldo, the head of a charity organization who worked with the poor and the brother of the New York painter George Waldo. Edwin had a medical condition, and news reports at the time described it two different ways. Some said it was a form of epilepsy. Others said it was a clot in his brain. And the reason the news was reporting on this at all was because Edwin was known to wander off aimlessly with no knowledge of who he was. The first time this was reported on was in 1894, when Edwin was in Chicago. The Tribune said he attended church that Easter Sunday, but never returned home. The entire city was put on alert to look for him, with the family explaining his odd condition. Ten days later, Edwin was found unconscious in Jacksonville, Florida. When he woke up, he recalled who he was and where he lived, but had no recollection of anything that happened after attending church that day. Now, after Edwin's engagement to Clara in the summer of 1897, 
The couple went to Talmadge and spent several days visiting Clara's family. Then they went to Chicago to visit old friends. And that's when Edwin disappeared again. This time, he took a rowboat out on Lake Geneva and just never returned. The boat was later found with Edwin's vest in it, but no Waldo. A couple of weeks later, he was reported to be in Wisconsin, but disappeared again. And a week after that, he showed up in Dubuque, Iowa, where witnesses said he purchased new shoes. Pinkerton detectives hired by his family to find him rushed to the town, but he was gone again. All that remained were the shoes he'd replaced, patent leather ones that were so worn they mused he must have walked all the way to Dubuque. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The witnesses who had spoken to him said he had mentioned he was trying to get passage on a boat to work as a cook in order to travel south. And so, communities all along the Mississippi River were put on alert to keep an eye out for him. Now, I know what you might be thinking here, since this is literally a story where everyone is asking, where's Waldo? But that's just a coincidence. I could not find any indication that the creator of Where's Waldo took his inspiration from Edwin Waldo's very strange case. This time, Edwin was gone for five years. His family figured he was dead. Clara moved on and returned to Tiffany's. And then, in 1902, Edwin, out of the blue, wrote his father to tell him he was in San Francisco and the minister of a California church. He had no memory of those last five years. Doctors guessed that perhaps the blood clot in his brain moved occasionally, which either obscured or returned to him as identity. Edwin and Clara did not get back together. But Clara did find love again. In 1909, she married Edward Booth, a British importer-exporter, and she permanently retired from Tiffany's. Now, up until now, I've told you as much about Clara's career at Tiffany's as we would have known for more than a century. Tiffany clearly respected her. In 1900, her dragonfly lampshade won a prize at the World's Fair in Paris, and Tiffany allowed her name to go on the prize. And in 1904, a New York Daily News article named Clara Driscoll as being one of just a handful of women in America who made a salary of $10,000 or more. Still, Clara was only ever publicly acknowledged for being a boss, the head of the women's cutting department, the supervisor of the Tiffany girls. It was the discovery of her letters back home that revealed she was so much more, that she was one of the company's premier artists. 
Here's one example of the evidence we have. In 1902, she wrote to her family, Today we got an order for 40 more dragonfly lampshades, 20 conventional peony globes, and five more wisteria lamps in all. And as they are my design and sell for $250 a piece, I feel quite pleased. Tiffany historians today say this is one of the first pieces of evidence that someone other than Tiffany had designed the artwork that bore his name. They might have suspected there were other influences, but after the company went bankrupt in 1932, all the records were lost and there was never a way to prove it. The letters also revealed a lot about Clara's personality, showing her to be smart, witty, cultured, and adventurous. She loved biking, sometimes up to 30 miles in a day. She lived in a boarding house on Irving Place with industrial designers and artists, actors and actresses, school teachers, and at least one businessman, that businessman being the Edward Booth, whom she would later marry. She talked of going on picnics, visits to art galleries, and evenings at the theater and other entertainment venues with her fellow boarding house residents. Those residents eventually pooled resources and even rented a summer cottage in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, where they vacationed together for several years. Clara was in her mid-40s and just having a wonderful time. Tiffany historians have even squealed about the precious insights into her career. She wrote about just having finished designing the daffodil lamp during her lunch hour. She talked about taking ice cream to a meeting to help sweeten a sensitive discussion she had to have with the ladies about work assignments. Her letters also revealed the inner workings of the Tiffany studio. Male Tiffany employees were represented by a union that women were forbidden from joining. In 1903, the men threatened to go on strike unless Tiffany fired all of its women. Clara shared her emotions about the compromise that resulted. It capped the number of women that could be employed by Tiffany at 27, and it banned women from working on Tiffany's famous mosaic windows. And while Clara never received public acknowledgement of her design contributions, it did not appear she expected more than she got. She was close to Mr. Tiffany and felt their respect for each other was mutual. She said he championed her work within the firm. In 1907, he even invited her on a three-month trip abroad with other artists to seek new inspiration. So, why did it take so long to discover these letters? My best guess is that descendants who had preserved them as heirlooms had no idea that the information in them about Tiffany was not common knowledge to the historians who had studied the man. In 1993, a distant cousin, Elizabeth Yergin, assembled the letters into a booklet. There were nearly 2,000 pages of correspondence spanning more than 50 years. This is really interesting. These letters were called round robins. 
and they passed through a chain of women in the family that included Clara, her sisters, her aunt, and her mom. Each woman would receive a letter, add her own contribution, then forward it to the next woman until all these letters made their way back to Talmadge. When it came Clara's time, she would include animated narratives about her life in New York and her fascinating career at Tiffany's. But it wasn't until 2005 when another family member, David Powers, mentioned these letters to Tiffany historian Martin Eidelberg. Eidelberg had recently published a book about Tiffany Lamps, and he only knew Clara Driscoll as the head of the Tiffany Girls. Eidelberg shared these letters with a pair of New York City historians who really shared his excitement. I found a story in which Eidelberg was quoted as saying, I think Tiffany would have died if word had gotten out that Driscoll designed some of his most famous lamps. The discovery of Clara's letters, which are now part of Kent State University Special Collections, are being used by auction houses and design experts to finally give credit where it is due. In an article in the New York Sun a few years ago, a specialist at the famous Sotheby's Auction House said they were excited to be able to add, for the first time, the actual names of Tiffany designers. You see, Clara had named others in her letters, and historians went to work trying to figure out who they were to complete the record. In all, they now believe at least 30 of Tiffany's lamps were either designed by Clara or created under her direction. Not just those, but also numerous decorative objects that ranged from inkwells and tea screens to mosaic desk sets. So, just for the Tiffany lovers out there, let me give you a list. Clara is credited with designing the dragonfly, cobweb, butterfly, wisteria, poppy, laburnum, arrowhead, and geranium, among others. She and two of her assistants designed the innovative flying fish shade and the deep sea mosaic and glass jeweled base. And most researchers also believe Clara was the originator of the concept of using kerosene and then electric-powered lamps of leaded glass for the Tiffany products. She also personally oversaw some of the company's biggest and most sophisticated commissions. One spectacular example is the interior of the Wade Chapel, located in Cleveland's Lakeview Cemetery. Now, Tiffany took credit for it, though the design was drawn by a man named Frederick Wilson. But it was Clara Driscoll and her Tiffany girls who did all the work. This they revealed in an 1899 letter home in which Clara said, There are 300 square feet of small pieces of glass to be accomplished. There is nothing like having enough work to do and feeling able to do so. Clara had no children. In her retirement, she decorated silk scarves, and she and her husband eventually relocated to Florida. That's where she died in 1944, just shy of her 83rd birthday. Clara's remains were returned to Ohio. She's now buried near the Wolcott family obelisk 
in Talmadge Cemetery. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more on this and every single one of our episodes. Hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Paula has it laid out fantastic there. Easy to search through, find the content that you want. We'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.